Carter, we back up in this mug. Okay. No one ever says mug. I've been saying on this podcast, I think I'm the only person keeping it alive. It's very 90s. Well. 90s, like a color me bad type way to not say motherfucker. Well, you know what's about to be up in this mug, though. <laughs> it's Valentine's Day, my friend. You better start thinking about it. Now, uh, your wife gets very particular about Valentine's Day, I think. like She's particular about events is what i'll say she's a sweet lady love her to death love her like a sister in christ but she's a sweet lady but valentine's day is coming and you better be on top of it because if you're not you might get divorced now that's a whole nother section of life you might want to you might want to get divorced i think the flowers will take care of that flowers you mean from ftd (laughs) well guess what you are in luck my friend because today's show is sponsored by ftd flowers and if you want to give your special someone that perfect Valentine's Day gift, send a bouquet of flowers from FTD for a limited time only. You can visit ftd.com slash badchristian and save 20% on your next purchase. Now, FTD covers all the postage and all that stuff. You know that, right, man? I mean, you, when, you, when you order through FTD, it's like a one-stop shop. They handle it all. But yeah. as you know, sometimes you need to send stuff through the mail. Mm-hmm. Right, maybe, maybe yep. just maybe for Valentine's Day, you want to send something, well, well, a nice card. You, well, I didn't tell you, Bridget and I are separated, so I actually have to mail her her Valentine's Day present. Oh wow! So you're gonna send, you can send her FTD flowers, and guess right. what? You, well, guess what else you can do? Stop you can use sponsoring the show. It's right. unbelievable. Stamps.com. It's stop. You've been wasting time your whole life on everything. You know, you've been looking at your phone, playing games, doing silly stuff, and going to the post office. Stop all that nonsense. Go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and enter our code BAD Christian for a four week trial. Who else on earth is giving four week trials during a pandemic? Stamps.com is free postage and a digital scale. The stamps.com promo code is BAD Christian. Use it. Okay? Now, Man, I got some heavy lifting thoughts in my brain this week. Oh, are we going to talk about working out? Or no, 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 no. Mental power lifting then. Well, I don't know. It's I'm talking about rights. I want to talk <laughs> about our rights. Okay. Do you think, okay, first of all, don't, don't go into a Carter, uh, you know, uh, rant where you go off and you, and you, you think in your mind you're talking to me, but you are not. The, the folks Just, at home, though, you know. <laughs> Like no. I, sometimes I know when you're yeah. not paying it, you I've lost you. Uh, but I know, I know there's somebody out there that's on my wavelength. I, I promise you, you are not. All the years we've list, uh, been <laughs> friends, there's been I'd say 85 percent of the time you ain't you might not be talking to me, but I'm just loud enough. I'm I'm loud enough to bring it back, and that's a part of our friendship. But I'm um, talking to somebody. So if me and you talk together, but I think it's you. <laughs> well, I, I think I believe. you love you. I I need m- m- to hear myself talk, and I need to think maybe somebody could maybe make sense out of. You what don't I'm need those other people. You love I don't challenging. Need 
You but love challenging helpful. Matt Carter. Yeah. Like if you can get Matt Carter caught in a corner, boy, is, is Matt Carter happy. Well, it is true that most of my other people think in pictures or self-narrative. I, I'm pretty sure that my thoughts, if I have them, are like <laughs> their conversational thought. You know, right. it's talking with out yourself. loud in my head with my with a dialogue. With you. <laughs> yeah, that's. I mean, that's the form right. in which I think is inner dialogue, and this I, the next step is externalizing it. But it's still, bare, it's just unformed. It's just barely yeah. on the other side of the barrier of how I talk to myself in my head. I don't want you to hijack my thoughts here, my my power have, my, my power level thoughts. But I have often wondered, and I've never told you this before. I've often wondered because I always think you're talking to yourself. I'm there, mm-hmm. and I'm like the third person with you and you. That's right. right? And Perfect. I and I, I and I can hang in there. I think you somehow somehow Bridget, your wife, can accept it. Devin, there's a few people that can handle it, and other people are like, oh, he's interesting for a little while or whatever. Right. You know, we all have our people think I'm overbearing, obnoxious, mean, whatever they think about me. Shit. But uh, I have often wondered, because you kind of have a little bit of face blindness, what you think you look like. <laughs> like, when you're talking to yourself in your head, what in the hell does that Matt Carter look like? It would be very funny if you could draw it there, you or I could know, see okay. it. But that's, that's the exact thing, is the, there has never been a time when I was thinking about anything else and ever considered what I look like. I that know. Never That's a, what I'm saying. I could never think so about if you what had I to, like be amazing. if I was doing something else, like talking. It, it, it's, it, thinking yeah. about what I look like would be the only, that would be my thought then. Right. And then I would be, be look the way I look if I walk into a room wearing like an outfit my mommy put me in, <laughs> like a cat with tape on its paws. If I, that's what happens to me if I start thinking about what I look like or how others <laughs> see me. It's like a cat with tape. It's like, what is, I start looking at my Just body can't. and I think, what is this? Th- what, what, right. You know, I, I don't think about myself i think yeah. about what i'm thinking about it it's almost like i'm just outside not much inside yeah i yeah i'm not yeah there's no self-conception that i think is going well or poorly uh, of others i just assume the words i'm saying are the way that i'm connecting with them not how i look i don't see how that's relevant <laughs> But if I could ever just see you draw a picture of yourself, I think that would be pretty. I, can't, I don't have an image. You, no I image. know, that's what I'm saying. But you, if you had to, if you were forced to, there's a, a, a terrorist holding a gun to your wife's head and says, you have to draw a picture of Matt Carter. That picture would be phenomenal. It would sell online. It would be very funny. It would look nothing like you. It would be yeah. very funny. It might look kind of tall and lanky, but after that, it would get pretty funny, I think. Yeah. And you're not you're not a good drawer. Devin's always the best drawer in the world. No, and I have no, you and I are terrible. I have at all it. ears and no. I don't. I just barely use my eyes. But you're right. I, can, I don't recognize other people for the way they look at all either. Right. Like their faces and stuff. Not very good. All right. So back to me. Um, I was thinking this week. How many people? I was going to ask this in the BC Club, and I, I couldn't figure out the right wording for it. So maybe you can kind of let me figure this out, talk this out a little bit, but and see. I was going to do a poll just to see. How many people do you think right now would sign up for basically, I guess it would be some kind of chip implantation or something in your brain? You know, like Elon Musk is doing a lot mm. with, uh, what is his, neuro, Neuralink. Neuralink. It might improve your brain, all this stuff. How many people, though, for free, would sign up now and they would say a little chip or something, some piece of technology that they put inside your body and it ended all like stealing or theft. Like it, it just maybe all products and stores 
had a barcode and, and it reacted with your chip and you couldn't steal stuff for stores. And then whoever, your house, it like physically like stopped you from like it made your legs not work or something to, if you were going to go into somebody's house or you, you know, it, like, it felt like almost like a barrier. But it yep. ended all that crime. For Property example, crime. yeah, yeah. And it, it even could maybe, I mean, you could start with just, you know, property crime, stealing, but maybe eventually they could, you know, upgrade it, you know, get the new version of it. And it even stops where if your finger's on a trigger, it knows it's on a trigger and you can't pull it if it's somebody is within 50 feet of you or something. Mm-hmm. Like nobody can or something like that. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe police possibly, but that sounds even scarier. But uh, I was just thinking about it today. It sounds really good. I guess the deeper question for me, I was thinking about it, is I was like, man, that sounds really awesome because my wife constantly tells me to lock our doors, and I just hate it. I hate it so much. I don't ever want to think. I mean, there's so much snow. It was negative two here in Champaign, and I I got into an argument with my wife because she said we had to lock the back door. I said, who is coming at negative two to break into our My God, let them have it. If you're out at negative two degrees trying to break into my house, you need it. It's your last. It's, you, you, where else can you go? Doors you have to. Please, let, come in. Take the TV. Whatever you got to take. I can't. I mean, if you would be out there stealing in <laughs> negative two, you need it. You take You it. need it. You know what I mean? And so, I, I mean, we got into a, an argument, and I sound like a jerk You know about a it. way to test that would just be to leave a $20 bill in front of that door. Right. For and and for get her to agree to amount of days that twenty dollar bill would need to stay there under the rock, yeah. To where she goes, okay. So there's nobody out prowling. Well, she she always has a good defense for that. She always just says, "You're stupid." <laughs> <laughs> she just tells me how stupid I am. It's a stupid idea. Well, you're gonna you're gonna waste a twenty dollar bill, blow away whatever you know. She yeah yeah. And yeah. She's she's usually right about that part. But anyway, how many people do you think? Because the for the greater good of it. If it meant crime stopped, like your possessions being stolen, uh, you know, crime. I mean, companies probably, you know, Walmart and and organizations, you know, businesses and stuff would probably think that's awesome. No more stealing, which probably costs a lot. You know, I mean, on some level, do you think people would want that? And then, how, or or am I wrong? Maybe maybe we should start right there. Would people actually choose? Yeah, you know what. Man, if we get in that, that'd be pretty awesome. I don't have to worry about anybody breaking into my house, or we don't have to worry about stealing anymore. Well, I don't just stealing. We can it, it might grow, on, but just think about just stealing. Uh, I was just trying to think of something simple. Well, or, the problem you know. is that is very, the the most similar problem to it is the coding of the autonomous cars and their value judgments they must make whether yep. they hit three people or save the driver. Which. Yeah, that will be a result of the programming of the technology. Right. So that's its own political debate. And guess what? There'll be two sides that are stalemate over that whenever the time comes to write that piece of code. Then you'll be in the space where you actually brush right up on, which is gun rights and the NRA, who have the already have reached this, and it's only stalemated for this reason. So the finger foot fingerprint RFID authorized to pull this trigger is ob- an obvious technology that we could easily have. But that right. technology is blocked for the reason of the ethical question you're asking now. So you're telling me red and blue just can't get along again. Well, whatever. Whenever there's ground to be gained, right. what, if there if you're in a binary system, the sides will both get into a position where that neither is willing to give an inch. Right. 
and and maybe for good reasons though. That's what I'm saying. The stalemateness of that might be good because yeah. if everybody was really scared of prowlers, that's how you wind up giving an authoritarian government just total right. power to stop it. Then that's the oldest thing in the book is. We will keep your fa- your children safe. You just need to give us more authority. That's all that you're saying. But the technology could be done with crypto. Pretty, you know, a blockchain would be the way to do that. So well, smart contracts. Yeah. You know, and you if you have the chip, you're not allowed. To, you it's like a dog fence. Like there's a perimeter that's digital, and it's on the blockchain. So if you make a digital contract and you is agreed upon, you can't go into this certain place without trespassing. You wouldn't be able to go into it because it would just like yeah. unleash pain in your brainstem or something. So well, you wouldn't go. I mean, it's funny, though. Like, look how quickly we handed over, like, easier air travel with TSA and stuff right. like that. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. it, 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 that's what I'm saying. The deeper question here is, though, our rights, I don't know. I'll tell you what this first, though. You're talking about politics, and you're saying they can't get along. But I, I here's where red and blue states, whatever state, color, whatever it is, all do get along. And it's flowers, my friend. There's, I, they, just, I mean, there's been a disagreement in no. how long have you has it been since you heard a political disagreement about flowers? It, I think that companies like FTD have stopped wars before because you just you just remembered. You know what? They might it's, let me send them flowers. Valentine's Day. It's a birthday. Let me send some flowers. Now, I, what do you typically do with your significant other to celebrate Valentine's Day? Jess and I, we're not big holiday people. So I did something a little unique this year. I ordered flowers early from FTD. Because I was like, you know what? If I send them on Valentine's Day, it just seems like, you know, that's the that's the normal Toby thing that Toby's going to do. I'm going to go a little bit early. You know what? I'm just thinking about you now, babe. I love you. So I'm uh, FTD. Not only can you get amazing flowers for Valentine's Day, you can get them any day of the year. That's why I think it's so cool. Seriously, when's the last occasion you purchase flowers for someone else? Or what about yourself? I mean, they're beautiful. The the flowers that I got, I was so blown away. I was my my stupid male brain just thought. Wait a minute. This is beautiful. I don't ever think about flowers enough. And just to get some flowers, it just made, you know, it's making everything a lot better. It makes it a little more romantic. It's a great way to say I'm thinking of you or a nice everyday addition to your home. All of FTD's bouquets are expertly arranged. And I promise you that it was it looked very expert. I was very impressed with the way the bouquet looked. And uh, they're delivered by local florists. Um, also, for a limited time only, you can save 20% on your next purchase from FTD by visiting ftd.com slash badchristian. Seriously, you can get 20% off right now. Valentine's Day is right around the corner. Why not go ahead and do that? I think it would be awesome. Seriously, what would you think of a bouquet of flowers that you have received? You would think, I'm so happy. I couldn't be happier. Uh, that special loved one of yours. They are amazing. So, if you want to give your special someone that perfect Valentine's gift, send a bouquet of flowers from FTD. And for a limited time only, you can visit ftd.com slash badchristian and save 20% on your next purchase. That's 20% off at ftd.com slash badchristian. Now, back to the rights thing, though. I was thinking we've gotten, we've thought for a while that we all have to have rights, more rights, more rights. That's what we need. Everybody kind of agrees to that. I think that way. I think you think that way. I think most people think. The more rights you have, the better, right? You, mm-hmm. you, right. Uh, I have been wondering with everything that has been happening, the pandemic, the Trump, uh, the, the downturn in the economy, who knows what else is coming in the future, are people starting to think more, like, less rights, but we get more protection, more safety? Like, is, is the last vestige of our government 
we can protect you, and yes. that's it. Yes. And 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 Correct. so, I mean, because obviously they can't stop a pandemic. I mean, the whole world. I mean, as terrible as Trump has been, I mean, the whole world hadn't really been able to stop this thing. I know there's a few. Oh well, yeah. What about you know uh, New Zealand? <laughs> so you know, I get it. But overall, this has been pretty bad across the entire world, and it falls on our government's responsibility to try and help us and educate us and do the right thing. They hadn't pr- protected us from a pandemic at all. I don't know if it's going to get any better. But are people thinking, wait a minute, if the government said, wait, we can do this, this, and this, let's go harder. Like I've been seeing more like wear two masks and you'll be, you'll be safer, even though no one says, why wouldn't the mask company just make it double thick? I, don't, I didn't understand that part. But are people willing to give up rights in the name of safety and think they're getting an even trade? Yeah, always. 100% always. But why? That's, why? That's why exactly have rights ever the, mattered then? Well, they just you know they're good. It's, it's nice to have all kind of rights. But if the barbarians come in for your wife and kids, you just give them up, right? And anybody would. That's how. That's totally normal. So you have to build like on The Walking Dead a really tall wall. Right. You have to, and it has to have spikes on it and scary people patrolling it. And if they don't do their job, you're very upset with them. And then why the fuck are you in that walled off community at right. that point? And so. You know, if they need more control, it's in their benefit to scare you or take advantage of the fact yeah. of some unfortunate thing that did, in fact, happen, 9-11 or whatever. Yeah. When the 9-11 happens, you go, well, you know what? Our, our bad, but do you want us to be more careful in the future or less? Well, here's what it's going to cost. Right. And you always take the you know, the choice is clear at that point. Do you think that our future is headed towards less rights? Like the, like the idea, moment, like, yeah, but like, I don't know about long term. Like the government will will use technology and say, "Hey, listen, the chip thing is going to be better for you. You're going to feel so much relief. You're going to feel so much less stress, so much less worry. I mean, we're going to give you UBI and you know universal basic income. We're going to give you this chip. You're not. I mean, let it let us take care of you. That's what. Yeah, that's the our same job. as the FDIC says that you're. Don't worry. If you got a hundred thousand dollars in your bank, we're good for it. Right. Unless they're not. Like that's like the military. It's like, well, right. I, you know, I've got eighty grand, so I'll be fine. Except for if the, if it's not, but if it, you know, that's worth something. Yeah. To you to have that, you. But it's it's that. made up. It's made up, and 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 the goal of the government to use those things is to have more control of you, and and to be well, able to control the situations incentive. more. It needs its right. own incentive, right? Or it wouldn't. It, why is the government going to do it if it doesn't have any incentive to? They, you know, they they, they don't want actually to, they don't actually care about you. No, they don't care about you. No, that's not why they're doing it. They have their own incentives for doing it. But we get it to balance pretty good, but it's very poor resolution way to solve. You yeah. know, it's just not very it's not good. It's just the be- it's just the least evil way we've got so far. I think I would if you told me the problem now would be the the mandate would everybody if you were forced to take cuz people aren't taking the vaccine right now. And I understand why. It's just it's, that doesn't that makes sense to me that you, if you're not ready to take the vaccine yet even though i'm very pro-vaccine i've always been pro-vaccine I've, I've made fun of non you know anti-vaxxers for a very long time this one hits a little different and i've been thinking ah uh, i don't know maybe you could just wait for it just a little bit and and when i say that i think i'm weighing the cost of what i think covid is for me and my my family personally if i was older if I was 65 years old, I'd, you know, my, I'd try to get it as soon as I could. It, you know, I would weigh each cost of the individual. Um, I mean, I haven't been offered it yet, so I can't 
I haven't even had an opportunity to say to turn it down. But I ha- I have been wondering like the idea of we we're being offered so much now. Okay, here's this vaccine. Wait, our government's going to help us with uh, social media. Our government's going to help us with uh, steroids in baseball. Our, our, that's probably an older one, but I'm just saying they. It feels like the government's got its hand in every damn thing. And if it's already this much, it can't go back. The government's not going to give <laughs> give up anything, so right. it's only going to get more, and it's going to mm-hmm. be more seductive it's and easier to accept question. it. Yeah, right. Or or you could think of it like this: everything has its time, and every government and every civilization and every culture will have a rise and a fall. Right. Yeah. So I, when you have something like is the bad stuff that happens, or Donald Trump comes along. It just, I mean, it's a one-way process, you know. So things like this just speed it up is the way I look at it. You just age your, you know, like, oh, every time you smoke, it takes 10 minutes off. Every time you get a a Donald Trump and then there's reaction and overreaction, everything tightens up. You know, we just spent years off of our civilization as far as I'm concerned. It just sped up the decline. But there, there is a decline. We are in it. It doesn't go the other way where you undo the things that cause it <laughs> so far. So yeah. all you can do is speed it up or slow it down until new things can be done. So you're thinking pretty soon the movie Red Dawn is going to come to life. Russians or Chinese folks will overtake us well, and we won't, we won't be United States. Yeah. There'll be Chinese troops on the ground by end of day. Do you think that that's the future, like an actual physical war? And no, I don't one country loses anymore? No, is that, that kind of gone? It'll be a digital war, I would imagine, with no troops. I don't you, see troops. Well, that's what I mean. Will, will you even realize it that you're dominated by another country at that point? Like, Maybe will not. you realize? That's what I was <laughs> so thinking. It's going to be weird. Yeah. Right? Like, right. you might still be United States, but it's not like all of a sudden we're like, yeah, but you know, we got this right. other guy. Uh, one day we'll be post from, this era, and you will li- yeah. you'll be living in a different society than the one you live in now and you'll go oh yeah i see how this is this now but it won't probably be invade move the you know borders put you know probably won't be like that it'll just be like if china for instance or some other place could completely dominate all commerce with super intelligence they developed they just would be in charge of everything without you don't have to fight right they'll just be and you know whoever gains the most yeah Talent and technology, especially if super intelligence is involved, they'll just be in charge. They'll well, just be automatically that way. <laughs> it's going to be insane. Well, uh, all right. Well, I'm thank you for letting me do my thought process there, Matt. Let's uh, let's 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 pay some bills here in a minute with stamps.com. But uh, coming up right before you do that, Matt, we got Barbara McHugh, and I'm really excited about this interview. She wrote the book, The Bride of Buddha. And uh, we're going to be talking about Christianity and Buddhism and uh, women's rights and how, uh, you know, the Buddha left his family. <laughs> like he had, a, I think, something like a, a two-day-old or something like that and just took off. And he's the Buddha. Yeah. yeah. I don't think he paid alimony. I don't think he was a dead. Uh, maybe was he a deadbeat dad? We're gonna, maybe we're going to find out. But yeah. we'll, get, we'll get to Barbara here in a second. Let's, let's, let's see what Stamps has got going on. Yeah, looking forward to that. She has a um, a Christian background, right? Or no, she's actively yeah. a progressive Christian now and writes about Buddha and incorporates yeah. a lot of Buddhism and then does fiction. So that yeah. all those things together is just right, right. up our alley. So um, looking forward to that. But before she joins in a minute, let's face it. 
Let's just get to the bottom of it. Get to I it. know we don't like to talk about it, but let's talk about it right now. Taking trips to the post office is probably not how you want to spend your time. Okay? Yep. We've said it. We all admit it. We don't want to have to go to the post office. That's why I recommend mailing and shipping online at stamps.com. Stamps.com allows you to mail and ship anytime, anywhere, right from your computer. You can send letters, you can ship packages, and you can pay a lot less than the discounted rates from the USPS, UPS, and more. We've been using stamps.com for uh, really years. We were using them since we were rolling T-shirts and taping the sizes on them and putting them in Tupperware bins out of a house from a volunteer in Charleston. Remember that? Yeah. All the way back. Right. Um, so they've been a great sponsor for us and, and a product we've used for a long time because it saves you time and money. So Stamps.com has saved thousands of businesses hours and tons of money. Thousands of hours, tons of money. With Stamps.com, you get all the services of the post office and UPS in one place, plus big discounts on mailing and shipping rates. Stamps.com brings the services of the U.S. Postal Service and UPS right to your computer is a must-have for any business. So whether you're a small office sending out invoices, an online seller shipping orders, or even a giant warehouse sending thousands of packages a day, Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. You simply use your computer to print the official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. And once your mail's ready, you just schedule pickup or drop it off. It's that simple. These guys have been way ahead of the curve for a long time. So stop wasting time by going to the post office and go to stamps.com instead. There's no risk, and with our promo code BADCHRISTIAN, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in BADCHRISTIAN. That's stamps.com, promo code BADCHRISTIAN. Stamps.com, never go to the post office again. All right, we got Barbara McHugh here, and she's the author of Bride of Buddha, Bride of the Buddha, which is uh, out right now. It came out on January 26. And uh, Barbara, thank you for being here. We really do appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, um, so right out the gate, it's a provocative title in, in your mind. How does that well, feel it, to you? Well, it's not really provocative in that the Buddha did have a wife. And uh, what I think what is provocative is that I actually have the wife eventually disguise her gender and uh, get into the all-male community after a few adventures of her own. Mm-hmm. Right. I thought that was the part that's fascinating. The storyline that, that follows the wife of Buddha and then her feeling, that, you know, what happens with her and then she goes out into the wilderness. I won't give too much. Well, I'm sure we're going to get into all this. But when I saw the title, Holly, your PR person, sent us, uh, the book. And, uh, when I saw the title, uh, it was kind of br- provocative to me. Cause the first thing I thought of was bride of Frankenstein. And I was like, Oh, th- for some reason that got, <laughs> that kind of stuck, that kind of stuck out of my head. Because... <laughs> well, it's just that I, I like it because it's really eye catching like bride of Frankenstein. What does this mean? Bride of Buddha. You know, oh, you hear yeah. about Buddha so much. What you never think about the, the there's the usually in in history it seems like there's the man and then you don't hear about the woman by his side or the woman that was there or you know and that's what I was really captivated by your book there uh, the idea you know kind of even starting out there of this you're telling a story that really hasn't been told am I right I mean uh, about her yeah well the the thing is there are a lot of legends and weird stuff about her I a lot of my research was in the earliest scriptures. And, you know, sort of the basic story of the Buddha, you know, you know, the story where his 
father tell his father finds out when the Buddha is a baby, a holy man says, your son will either be a great spiritual holy man or he will be a world turning monarch. Well, the husband really wanted him to be the monarch. So uh, he decided he'd set up the the greatest worldly life for the for the son, so he would never be tempted to be a holy man. So the, the myth is he's a prince in a palace. And uh, so he has this great life and he's, he doesn't see any, any sign of sickness, old age or death until he's 29 years old. And so he's supposed to be very happy. He lives an ideal life. He has women, but then he has this beautiful princess he marries. And they have a son, which in a patriarchy is, you know, the primo life to have. And then uh, he, uh, he sees a dead man, uh, in order, I guess he sees a sick man, an old man, a corpse, and then a holy man. And he decides, and is devastated. I mean, the symbol there is he finally understands we're gonna die. And it's this it's symbolic of our total, you know, our human existential crisis. So at that point, he, he decides he wants to be a holy man, but he has to desert his wife and two day old baby. And a lot of women I knew said, well, I don't wanna be any, have anything to do with the religion whose founder is a child deserter or right. a wife deserter. So that's what sort of compelled me to, to explore the story and see what see what came out of it and to tell it from her point of view. That's that's a great uh, and concise setup of that, too. So thanks for walking us through the, even just that myth that quickly. I think that's got to be helpful for a lot of people. Of course, we come from a, a Christian audience and upbringing and post-Christian type of uh, deconstruction view and stuff like that. And that's one of the reasons I thought the title quite produ- provocative is because it implies like the bride of Christ or something. Yeah, yeah. You know, well, it's like, and then these religious figures, same with Abraham, like who wants to follow religion where you go murder your son and you're supposed to do that or whatever. <laughs> There's plenty of those tricks. Right. I don't know if they're tricks or like even um, like plays at things of language that survive uh, in these stories that are, they're p- intentionally supposed to like bump you out of how you think of things so that you w- look at a deeper thing. You know, they're kind of, it's almost like that's part of the power of the myth, maybe, is whether or not it's literal. It makes you think from some other point of view. It's kind of a little puzzle. Like, how could a man, what could be so important that a man would do this or not? Right. Those kinds of things. And and I think an important thing of this this myth, because the question becomes, why did he have to have a wife, a child? Why couldn't he just been this wastrel who, you know, just had this great worldly life, you know, wine, women, and song, and, you know, he gets sick of hangovers and decides to be a holy man. But mm-hmm. I think the myth is saying the best of all possible lives, uh, you know, is not, a, is not enough. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be death. And so no matter who you are, and the Buddha's first insight is life is full of suffering. He doesn't say life is suffering. He says life, there's, it entails suffering. You're not going to get out of it. And so that idea that he had to leave the most precious thing, a mature love, not just some, you know, degenerate kind of wastrel's life, but a real true ideal life, particularly for the times. And I think that's important, but still I said, yeah, but the woman got dumped. And I've got to right. find out well, how does that how does that work? Because I've been dumped and it's not pleasant. Thankfully, <laughs> never with a two-day-old baby or any baby. But anyway, so I wanted to. I, that was one of the reasons why I wanted to work with that myth. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. You're right because there is a two-day year two two-day-old baby, and somebody has to stay and parent that baby. 
and he just relinquished that. And so, I mean, if she would have done that in that moment, then what would have happened to the child? It, then it would have been really cruel, right? Well, fortunately, I think it just hypothetically speaking, she would have been put with a wet nurse. I mean, he, the, the wife and child were well taken care of. He didn't leave them in the, by the ropes, right. you know, so that was, but still she was, she, she expresses in the earliest scriptures what I think is maybe a bitterness, you know, and it, it later it's the, the story becomes, oh, she becomes part of the Sangha. And, but this is all later stuff in the early, in the early myth. She just, we don't hear about her after she gives up her son to be a monk because the monk comes back six years. I mean, Buddha comes back enlightened as the Buddha six years later. And, uh, you know, he reconciles with his family more or less. And um, his son is like seven and he wants to become a monk or he becomes a monk. And the, there's a scene in a very, very short scene in the scriptures where she says, go, this is your father, take your inheritance, you know, go, I, I'm pushing with my hands. I just realized it. <laughs> go away and just take your inheritance. You know, and it's hard to know how to interpret that, but we don't hear about her again in the early scriptures. So what happened to her? And so that's what the story was I wanted to tell. And I also wanted to put you know, a lot of women are doing this now. They're looking at historical women and mythological women, even like Circe, the witch who seduced uh, Odysseus. They're looking at them from the women's point of view, sort of to put women in the center of, you know, with men and every other gender you want to name in the center of the human dialogue. So mm -hmm. that when you think of a person, you don't automatically think of a man. You know, that point of view, I mean, that we're not defined by our genders, we're characterized by them. And so that was one of the other, that was the other purpose of really telling, telling her story, you know, and what can it be and how can she end up influencing Buddhism? One of the things I wanted to ask you, because uh, you're using that word myth, and so I wanted to ask you first, uh, or, I mean, are you a Buddhist? Were you a Buddhist before you wrote this book? Is that part of the story here? Um, I'm a Buddhist and I'm a Christian and I'm neither. <laughs> I was, <laughs> I've had a... I mean, just because I don't want to be defined, right. mm -hmm. <laughs> but I, I do. I attend a Christian church, and I, I am a board of the director. I'm on a board of directors of a Buddhist sangha, and so I, I and I feel very committed to both of them. My my Buddhist is a bit stronger, but I so appreciate the Christian church, which I've been involved in for is well since the mid '90s, and I actually I was brought up in sort of a semi. Christian tradition. I say semi because it was more like the religious wars. My father was a Catholic who didn't believe in God, but believed that Catholicism was a one true church. And my mother <laughs> Love it. She thought that they worshiped like dead body parts and things. She would give me these lectures. She said, they brainwash you. Now, this is a married couple. I don't know how they did it. I mean... <laughs> But anyway, so, I've, I've, so and we're all, you know, as Americans, I mean, the Christian vision is really how we, you know, even if you're not a Christian, you have that outlook, you know, that, and so I, I wanted that connection in my life. And then I, I fell into this Christian church because my roommate from graduate school was the uh, head minister. Nah. And she, I, so I wanted to support her in her effort and uh, I came for I came for her and I came for the music and I stayed for the old people. 
the old <laughs> people at this church were so transformative that I, I knew I just had to stay. They were just wise and funny. And That's I'll tell wonderful. one story about the old people. Um, this woman, they, periodically they take the old people and put them up on stage and have them talk. And it was always fun. And this one woman said, you know, I'm so glad I'm 85. Because when I was 82, I really didn't have it together. But now <laughs> I've really gotten some stuff out of it. And I just thought, well, if I can be that way when I'm 85 and I'm heading toward that too rapidly, uh, that, that's a good thing. But anyway, I, so sorry to ramble there. <laughs> I think that that's, uh, you know, from the point of view where we're sitting now culturally, and a lot of our audience, of course, grew up in, in the kind of traditions that were religious that were very tribal in that sense that your father was with Catholicism, I think, whether we were Southern Baptist mm-hmm. or whatever it was. But um, for so much of that to have been revealed over the last, you know, 10, 20 years or even two or four, um, it, it leaves so many people of trying to figure out what are the parts about this faith that are right, because no matter what, you know that a lot of the things that you've experienced as positive and good and moral and right were all embodied and represented and in the church and seems like we're talked about by Jesus and everything else. But then if you can get far enough out of it, it really seems the same qualities exist in the Eastern religions that we were so siloed from. So at this time, I think it's a quite an interesting thing that everybody's always thought was dangerous, but now it only seems wise to try to really see what there is to learn from the Eastern and Western, you know, traditions to, to fuse them. It used to sound so absurd to me that you were devaluing one so much that you would participate in the other. I, you know, that their exclusivity was really yeah. easy for me to understand that you have to be one or the other. And I could never could have understood that. But now when I think about those old people here or wise people in Buddhism, meditate and all this other stuff, that, that seems like the same thing to me. Yeah, there, I find, and one of the themes of my book really are sort of the, the sort of the polarity that you see in Buddhism and Christianity and all religions, and yet you tend to like well the polarity between con- contemplation and and social action or loving love. How do you love the world, and the people in it, and at the same time transcend the world? And I think all religions have these poles, but they all do it a little bit differently. And so I think Buddhism and Christianity in particular are very complementary. And the deeper I get into both of them, the more I see that. Uh, I call myself like, I had a friend who called herself a non-theist Christian. And I thought, yeah, that, that's sort of where I am. But I'm almost a non-theist theist because there are times <laughs> that I could sing in a gospel choir and it's all there, you know, that spirit, that connection. At other times, I, I really am a, a non-theist, and I, I work from the point of view of emptiness and uh, mental training. And I think the complement, I mean, I think the, the two poles are in Buddhism, the emphasis very often is on that mental training, really getting to understand your mind. And I think in this time, these times, that is vital. You know, if I had one message, oh, we've got to understand how our minds work. And why we get off on rage and grief and, and you know the kinds of delusions. And when you see these conspiracy theories, mm-hmm. you think, how can this happen? But the mind actually works that way. And when you really start meditating, you see your own mind exaggerating things to sort of craft your to create selves and having whatever your conditioning is. 
And you sort of see yourself, oh my God, I, I'm acting out of ignorance here. I'm acting out of a need to define myself. And it's anyway, so th that's that side. And the other side is the, that need of love. And what I find in Christianity, which is, is unique, I think, it's again, all the religions have it, but this way of devoting yourself to the poor and the downtrodden. I mean, I think that's where Christianity uh, shines forth because all of these religions, and I'm including all the major religions and you know most religions period, have a goal of freeing oneself from the trap of the self, you know, the selflessness. And in Christian, and I think that part of that freeing yourself is this mental discipline and meditation and understanding all you know, being in the present, emptiness, all that stuff. But it's also being able to participate in the being of everyone. And that includes people that you hate. And that's the Buddhisms are good, Buddhists are good at that, but people that you know, that are you are the people that are in some ways losers, you know, I mean, that you would dismiss as losers or people that are underprivileged and you dehumanize them in some ways. And I think Christianity demands that you say, no, these people are the soul. These aren't the people at the center. We're all at the center. And that, I think, is so important in Christianity. So yeah, I think, go ahead, Matt. Well, well, you I'll have just, the go ahead for you. <laughs> no, I give it up. <laughs> okay, I'm, well, I'm doing the Christian thing. <laughs> yeah, thank you, thank you. You, you first, me, me last. <laughs> I, let me let me be last by being first. Then thanks a lot, asshole. Yeah, um. yeah I mean that's a great. <laughs> in my novel, my character is, is always torn between these two poles because she's a mother with a son at the same time. She, I mean, the Buddha went. You know, there's the other side of the pole is you can't just love individuals. You know, the Buddha says, if you have a um, hundred loved ones, you suffer a hundred times more. Mm -hmm. And so, so she has a son and she's a mother and yet she somehow has to universalize this love. How is she going to do it? You know, and it, I don't see it as a real easy thing coming down on one side or the other. I think that this is a tension we all maintain. And there's right. this well, that's what I wanted to say about that tension that's so crazy is how they seem similar in outcome or life well lived or the people that seem wise or, or get it together in both, maybe. But they seem to be very opposite at the ground level when you describe them because, one, you say this theistic thing where there is some spiritual yeah. thing and I'm singing to God because regardless of me, there's goodness and I'm taken care of and at least I'm good and I want to pay that forward. But it, that all hangs on that, that loving side of belief and all that. And then on the other side, you're saying the other really good thing is where I work from emptiness. And that nobody's, that doesn't sound good from the other point of view. Like well, it, I know, I know. That and, doesn't sound great. <laughs> but the theist, for, for, for me, I'm, I'm not a theist ultimately. You know what I say? I think that there's a point, I think in some ways emptiness, you can almost emptiness and God are one. And you, you to live that and to understand that, you know, can take, well, it could take a long, long time and just to get flashes of it. I also, but, oh, by the time I get to be my age, I'll, I'll know more. Well, mm -hmm. I still struggle with it. You know, but there's more to the struggle, and I feel more, I feel more alive to it. You but know, you'd have to be pretty open if you were, say, a Southern Baptist singing in the choir and feeling <laughs> guilty about what you did between Sundays. Right. To yeah. think that where I need to go is where uh, you start from emptiness. Yeah. It's not theistic, and 
really the whole thing is like um, you'd have to, you know, you had to really open yourself to all the, all those things and then believe that everything is one. I mean, that's just not an attractive path well, for anybody. <laughs> that's why I well, thought it actually, sounded so dumb. Like, well, wait, I can believe everything's see, one and then I'll be happy after that. Oh, great. You know, that's what no, I would have fact, thought. You know. everyone, a Buddhist will say, no, everything is one. It's just another concept. And part, it's not that you start with emptiness or any contact. Con, uh, concept. You start. The Buddha said, "What do I do? All I do, one thing. I, I, my purpose is to end suffering. That's it. That's where you start. That's why you, you know. And once you really understand what suffering, that sounds Christian. Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, but that you, doesn't help me get what I want right, right. in life. But once you really understand what suffering is, then a lot of things you drop. You realize I don't have to be a great writer, <laughs> mm-hmm. or you don't have to be a muscle man, or I don't, you know, I don't have to, and all you understand because these are just making me suffer more. Why? Because the source of suffering, the cause of suffering is this craving. And this craving is like an addiction. And I think that, you know, the concept of addiction we have now is, is really where it is. We're addicted. We're addicted to our material possessions. We're addicted to have, you know, being better, quote unquote, than our neighbors. We we can be, I mean, the danger of being a quote good person in Christianity is you get you get addicted to it. And it's more important for me to be a good person than to really help people. Yeah. You know, and so yeah. there, there's all, you know, that both sides, and that's why I say it's really important to have both both sides of the pole acknowledged, because if you just take one path, you're gonna end up going down um the trail of that addictive craving no matter what religion you belong to. did you see the disney movie soul the new one what's the name of it? I don't the, think I the new disney movie is called soul and it's no. kind of like about jazz music um but there's Ooh. a the whole subtext of the movies they go into this ethereal realm and there are people separated from it. it's very along the lines of of the of like an eastern thing kind of the way you're describing i was curious had you seen it to verify that it's an apt analogy for that but that addiction they had they show the people that not in their bodies in these zombie like subland that are not in touch with their bodies like part of the plot of that movie so i thought that's interesting uh, that that's becoming mainstream no, no i haven't seen i like i think it's on our list you know in this strange world where uh we never go anywhere we just do our little netflix mm-hmm. thing it's just right but um well barbara i was gonna ask you too i don't know near that much about uh Buddhism, but I feel like in some ways Christianity was hijacked by uh, Jesus Savior. You don't have to do anything. He does all the work. He saves you. He came to earth. He did, you know, and it's, but also his divinity and sinless life. And now with, with this book, you're talking about the Buddha. Is he considered uh, in a way, a, is it looked at the same way that spiritual leader, savior type figure? Uh, but like, even with this book, it feels like he has, you know, he was able to leave his wife and child. Like that, that is seem that that doesn't seem good to me. Like a, a guy you want to follow, but what is what is he in in uh, Buddhism compared to like Jesus? I think these are great questions and great considerations because uh, the whole idea of what is a savior. Uh, to first to ask your first question, leaving his gene, uh, wife and child. That was before he was enlightened. So there, I mean, and he was not divine. He was never divine, and he always said, "I am not a god. I am a man. I am just awake." That's all he ever claimed for himself. 
And so, I've, and there have been people, of course, you're talking about, you know, something gets hijacked and that all these religions always do get hijacked. Mm -hmm. A lot of people want to turn the Buddha into a God, turn him into someone. The most important thing is he can walk through walls and do all this other stuff. No, he's a man. And he, his, and he states again and again, all I want to do is end, you know, suffering. That is my purpose, you know, to, you know, and he gives the four noble truths, you know, and the cause that's suffering and the end of suffering and how to reach it. And the, the, the eightfold path of all these sort of numerical Buddhism things, it, it begins with some view of uh, what is suffering, but and what is, um, it's, it really, in, in a very real way, it begins with morality. Because you can't, uh, you can't, as my husband always says, you can't meditate after a day of raping and pillaging. You really do need to lead a moral life. And that's very emphasized in Buddhism. Um, but this whole thing about being a savior, I mean, I think that when I think of Jesus as a savior and when I think of, I could think of Buddha as a savior the same way, both of them awaken us. Both of us, both of them transform, I mean, cause us to transform ourselves. That's my view of it. I mean, you know, I know there are other views, but I mean, I mean, you can look at, well, salvation comes from the outside and, you know, some Adam and Eve sinned and now I'm, but to me, it's that personal transformation. It's that right. uh, being able to, again, free yourself from these addictive ego uh, cravings and uh, behavior and pain and suffering. Um, can I poke at that thing about not raping and then meditating? Uh, you know, you would say a similar thing about prayer, you know, like men of God, as you could imagine, they maintained all the way through the Crusades or whatever. And I've seen a lot of meditator people that run terrible companies uh, or are weird oh, yeah. gurus with sex cults and stuff. They meditate, right? Absolutely. Like every day. Yeah, no. And I mean, Meditation, like any powerful tool, could be misused. I mean, the whole the mindfulness movement in some ways is great, but when it becomes you can be if you want to be mindful, be in the present moment, you could be a great cat burglar, you know, because oh. you really got to be in the present moment. Real Buddhism, mindfulness, the Zen of sin, what the Zen of sin, but I mean, for the Buddha, you know, mindfulness just um you know, blissing out in the present moment. In fact, blissful states are great if they're, they're on, on the path and you have this wonderful feeling of love and oneness, but that's not what it's about. What it's about is this freedom from these, the self and freedom from the, these, uh, this, this addictive craving. And that's, then, you can, then what, what opens up is your natural love and compassion. And you can act and this, everyone has these moments where we, we are released from the need to be such and such or the need to be a good person. We're humans, so our motives are mixed. But to have more moments of a sort of pure, pure self, a pure, pure selfless self, where you could truly act out of love. That's, that's what the purpose is. Now I've forgotten what you were asking me to begin with. No, I was just saying, you know, just you, can, you were speaking of meditation as a tool. You know, which oh, I yeah. think is really cool yes. that that's a way to that, to be mechanical about what it does as a top tool for your mind. And you're speaking about how the mind actually works, which I love compared to things that just sound the term I use is woo woo. I'm afraid yeah, I mean, to talk about meditation at all because it sounds so dumb. 
and yeah, it's like no, inherently no. weird to talk about. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, and this is the problem. It, it's it has really been misused. And occasionally, I mean, there was a one Buddhist. Uh, um, the Buddhists, the people that I have have worked with over the years, are, um, uh, are they're a co-educational group, and there's no big woo-woo guru, which mm -hmm. is nice to be. Good. There's no charismatic figure. Now there was a charismatic Buddha back in a uh, Buddha, a guru back in the um, what was it seventies or something, and he got into all kinds of sexual trouble. You know, I mean, you know, supposedly a Buddhist, but he misused his the power he did get and as we know i mean the same thing as priests that molest kids and ministers that go bad and the you have that spiritual power and you really do need to um uh be responsible and and, and, and it doesn't matter what religion you are in there always are people who abuse it yeah, it's like what you were saying earlier. It's like people in the in the power they lose their focus of to end suffering. Christianity and Buddhism sounds like they're both about trying to end suffering for other. Less of you is is more for the world. Uh, yeah. Giving yourself—that's what Jesus taught. I mean, a lot of the Eastern religion sounds a lot like what Jesus said, and that's why I used that word hijacked earlier because it feels like Christianity kind of just went. Wait a minute, Jesus, tough, powerful. Republican, uh, you know, uh, you know, you, he's going to fight for the, the he's going to fight for the baby in the womb. He's against this. He's against this. He's against this, as opposed to being less and loving and trying to end suffering. And, and that, I think when, when any person with a little bit of power gets that power, it is very easy for them to stop focusing on ending suffering for other people and then focusing on self, right. And growing self and making, you know, making yourself bigger. Uh, one of the things I was going to say too, I, I love going back a little bit. You used that word myth. Uh, with Christianity, you can't use myth. You have to say it's fact. It, you know, it, every, every word of the Bible was God breathed, and it, you know, it, nothing. But I, be, I believe myth is really, oh. really powerful. I think I, it's not lesser. It, the, the stories of the Bible, I don't care anymore. I, I grew up in a very small, charismatic church, backwoods church. You know, forty people running across the pews, speaking in tongues. They want uh, no myth. Yeah, yeah. If it if, and if you told told them, man, this myth is powerful, they would think you were sinning. They they would think you're a bad person. I love that how powerful actually myths are, though. There's real truth in that, and and you know, geez, the truth will set you free. Uh, uh, I'm wondering, like, when you when you say myth, when you were doing your research for the book, you you kind of did fact and fiction, and what? How far, like, where when you were doing some of the research, was myth or stuff that you know that could have been fact? Well, back then, I mean, there's there's no real way to prove a lot of the material in the script, the stories in the scriptures. Uh, there, we we don't know about the monks. What happened was the Buddha taught for like until he was 80 years old. I mean, he had a long time teaching. He the suttas are you know thousands and thousands of pages, and uh, they they're discourses and interspersed with stories. They're uh, basic you know, nuts and bolts of how to do all this meditation. Uh, so uh, what, where was I going with this? What happened then was that the Buddha, all right, the Buddha died and the monks had to decide who's, who's gonna pass this along and what are we gonna say? So it did not get written down for almost 500 years. The Buddha died, the, tech, the uh, traditional age for the, uh, year for the Buddha to die was 483 BC. And uh, the, um, the uh, scriptures weren't written down till um, first century BC. So there was a long time in there. 
Yeah, very long time. And Scotland is a phone that was they did really uh, were fairly accurate, at least at least what scholars say in terms of what got passed along. But there are a lot of inconsistencies and you know strange things as in the you know, that, that are not our contradictions. So that's one of the things I had to run. That's what I had to deal with when I was working with these poly stories. What 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 part of the myth is, what am I going to use? What's the real powerful part of the myth? Because in some ways, the whole thing is a myth. I mean, right. and I, and the, what the, one of the things that Booth emphasized when I really, uh, what draws me to Booth is he says, don't just listen to me, do it, try it yourselves. You know, try, you know, meditate and look at your minds and see, does this stop suffering? If I behave this way, does it reduce suffering? Does it, you know, and he always goes back to that kind of empiricism. Try it yourself. So the myths then, I mean, sort of like this, the power of the myth of the Buddha leaving his wife and child then, but it does have that power of the perfect life is not enough. And that can sometimes be very illuminating. And so many of the myths of Jesus are so powerful. And yet there, there are contradictions all over the place. And, you know, the Jesus at one point, these are not my mother's, these are not my brother's mother's. And, you know, I do not come here to bring peace. I come to bring a sword. What's all this about? Right. And yet it, it does, it, it shows that, that there's no way we can reduce any of this to words and concepts. We have to live with it, breathe it, and at the same time use concepts for when we need them. Yeah. And so maybe that's a quality of myth is it's likely if you're trying to be literal or something that myths are maybe composites of, of, of people and situations put into like, that's what our movies kind of are. Like it's a, the, they take a, maybe a true story or concept, but they know how to add rising action to keep your attention, to make it a good enough story, which is the only reason the next generation of people will still have that good movie because it was so Spielberg did it. So he was able to take everybody's wisdom and channel into one thing. So that'll probably survive. So whatever E.T. says about us will be powerful at that time to be decoded kind of a thing is the way I see it. But yeah. there may not have been that person, but it is a brilliant concoction of wisdom then compressed into a very small yeah. package that can endure. Yeah, it, so it embodies our psyche in one way or another. Mm -hmm. It enables us to, it's a mirror for us to see ourselves and feel new possibilities. I mean, that's what I think, you know, as a novelist, that's what I do. You know, I, I take these myths and okay, where is the underlying truth here? And how do I, uh, how do I access this truth in my, you know, mind, heart, and gut? You know, and then how does that come back on the page? Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful process in a lot of ways. And sometimes it's harder than hell you know it's very difficult but. you're right I, I i was thinking about it uh just even over the last few weeks i was thinking we as far as christianity like the church i grew up in uh it's so uh consumed with you like you said this earlier just the idea of the person that could walk on water or walk through a wall or do this mystical thing that proves that you're god and i was thinking about the story of jesus with the fish and the loaves of bread and 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 that story is a large gathering of people hoping for healing or, you know, some type of learning or this savior that, you know, this story. And so if the story wasn't, if you found out today that it wasn't, uh, that he had, uh, you know, s s uh, magic powers fish that he could just shoot out of this basket and give it to everybody right. and feed everybody. What if it was that everybody <laughs> came together and shared their food? And I was thinking about what if, what if you had 5,000 people 
on the lawn or whatever in front of the White House, and they all shared food instead of what was, you would think that's that's you even more of a miracle. Yeah, yeah, it, it, would be, it would be that more to of the a leader, miracle. right? I would actually, but, but they would be, that would be more powerful than a, a magician pulling fish out of a hat or whatever. You know what I mean? Like the the, the thing that would be people go regardless of our political beliefs or what we're doing. If we can break bread together and sit here and and do this as uh, humans being humans to each other, that would even be more powerful. I think sometimes you get you miss that or whatever. That's why even with your book, I was thinking it's really great. You know that, <laughs> that the, the the part of it would be that the the Buddha maybe you know before he was enlightened or whatever, he did have some stuff in his past. You know, like our one of our Christianity's greatest uh, leaders or authors is Paul, but Paul killed Christians. He was like yeah. a terrorist to Christians for a very long time, and then all of a sudden, you know, he he's the greatest guy ever. If if Paul had been killing Christians in the in the 2000s, and now all of a sudden said, "Hey, guess what? I'm a Jesus believer. Let me teach you." No, Americans would would murder him. They would, you know, we wouldn't we wouldn't read his books and stuff right. like that. So it it I I appreciate that the that the truth is more powerful than the magic trick. I guess. It'd be like if mm-hmm. Martin Luther I, I King, uh, you found out later, he was just an illusionist and he had some magical powers to make people like get along and stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it wouldn't be as it, it, not as good as being right, as a person. Right, wouldn't be as good. Yeah. But that that idea of you know the loaves and the fishes that we can take that myth and then see the power of it, like you, the power of love. I mean, there's what the power is is the Holy Spirit that would enable these people to share their food. Say, hey, we do have enough food after all. You know, we, hey, we can sit down and share that, you know, and so that myth survives and gets reinterpreted, maybe rewritten in something else. But that's what fascinates me about myth. It's, I had one uh, teacher of mine when I told him what I was doing, like, going to have a little gender transformation here. He's going, are you going to violate the basic myth? And I thought, am I going to violate it by doing this? And I've meditated on this. Well, for one thing, the the basic myth of Buddhism was already been violated in the scriptures by a lot of really little nasty misogynistic stories and you know the way these things crop up in holy books and I thought no this isn't violating the myth this is carrying it forward you know this what's is an too- example of what it would mean to violate the central myth well you know I've thought about that and I thought would I be violating the myth if I divide uh said something like well the Buddha is actually a psychopathic killer you know, and right. we've all been wrong about them all. You know, and I, you know, I, this, I still, I'm not sure. At first, I thought this would be a violation. You know, X, you know, ABC, no, no problem with that. But now I'm thinking, you know, you're looking at these things. We're all evolving into no Lord knows what, and uh, hopefully, we're going the same way. I would never do that. By the way, I would not write a myth. I would not write a book with Buddha or Jesus or anyone being a psychopathic killer who, you know, who holds so much positive power for so many people, you know. And but you wouldn't I do think, that? You would never that do that do, because why? Because I, I think that it would, these are good questions. I have not totally figured it all out for myself, um, but I, uh, I think that it would, it would damage, I don't, you know, I don't know. I have to think about that. It'd be wrong <laughs> morally somehow to you, though. You know that. <laughs> yeah, it somehow, yeah, wrong. that I would not feel comfortably morally. Now, I may, you know, there might be a time where I could, no, we have to do this. We have to write this myth because we need to evolve our concept of what is good, what is, what is, uh, what is the reality. I'm not sure, but I, I don't, I, I've, 
care enough about the Dharma that one of the things in my book I wanted to do was demonstrate the Dharma to people and how it works and how, you know, I have her meditating. I have her sort of examining her mind. And a lot of that comes out of my practice in this book without uh, 20 years of in fairly intense practice and um, 10 years before that too. I mean, I really started doing Buddhism in the eighties. And that was after some experiences with the, you know, these charismatic gurus. And uh, going back to, you know, the people that we all go, oh, they're, they, they are really violating the religion and they're seeing God as this absolute parent figure that says right and wrong. But I think we all have this need for certainty, you know, and, and I, the need to, and also the need to feel compassion for everyone, no matter what, you know, whether they're Islamic state or, you know, fundamentalist death squads or whatever, you know, we're in their souls, they're suffering. And there's this feeling that we, we need to identify that this is the common disease of us all, you know, that, we, that we're all going to die, we don't know where we're going to end up, and we're all in it together. And I mean, I really feel that the, the nonviolent way of of connecting with people is the only way we're going to change ourselves, not by, you know, more fighting and killing. Yeah. Uh, so well, when you were mentioning misogyny and maybe even some of the patriarchal system, is that in some of the scriptures with Buddhism? Because, I mean, obviously there's tons of that in the Bible. You can find, I mean, in, in, in history in general. When, when you're writing this book, uh, do women play a, a diminished role in Buddhism throughout the scriptures? Oh, uh, well... Uh, I see them as there is misogyny to answer your question. I mean, that's thousands of pages. There's bound to be some. I mean, and there are a few references to women as snakes and deceptive and one of scant wisdom. And, and I'm thinking, yeah, that's not that's not nice. But it also contradicts, I think, the basic attitude of the Buddha. The Buddha always believed that women could become enlightened, even before he uh, admitted women to his sangha. Now, my book is about, isn't based on the, the historical slash legendary theory, story that the Buddha did not invite women into a Sangha at first. And it took Ananda, this junior unenlightened monk, to persuade him. Uh, and I thought, well, this is a strange anomaly. How could an unenlightened monk persuade the Buddha to make this major policy change? And that was one of the reasons why I wanted to do the gender switch because I wanted to make Ananda the monk and Yasodhara the wife the same person. And there were a lot of strange parallels and anomalies that pointed to that. Now, I'm not a scholar. This is not a scholarly treatise at all, but it was something I wanted to do. But anyway, yes, to answer your question, yes, there's misogyny, but I think that it really contradicts uh, the basic attitude of the Buddha even before he admitted women. And when he did admit women, he had them teach, and he was he praised their teaching. And there's a whole section in uh, these scriptures called Terigata of women's uh, discourses and women's sort of stories and tales. And so there's a whole section devoted to women, but it's a lot smaller than a lot. It's than the male stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, women were not equals in. In Buddhism in that sense, but ultimately they were because they were capable of awakening just like everyone else. And so that, and the nuts and bolts of the Dharma, you know, the really looking at your mind and doing the practices gender free, you know, it doesn't, it does not point to gender at all. It's really any, you know, if you follow the, 
the disciplines, it doesn't matter what sex you are. And so uh, I just wanted to uh, say, too, about the book. So the Buddha's wife, basically your story goes, she kind of goes on her own spiritual journey, right? And right. ends up becoming like she even, I mean, you can give us a little bit of a synopsis here real quickly, just so the yeah. people at home can ca- can can oh, know yeah. a little bit about well, the story. Yeah, we don't know the spoiler level. Or of yeah. Right, yeah, I don't, yeah, spoiler alerts. But, well, she starts out as a child. Uh, her sister dies accidentally, and she blames herself. And uh, she has this very, she goes to the charnel world grounds to try and rescue her sister because she thinks she's not really dead. She can't be dead. She's 10, and at this point, uh, Yasudara, the, the Buddha's wife, is 10 years old. Her sister was seven. And she goes into the char- charnel ground and she, she realizes there, there are no ghosts there. There are no spirits. And she has this experience of the utter death and what a, looking at these corpses and what does this mean? And she decides then I have to become a holy wanderer and learn this. So she, so in some ways, she learns what the Buddha learns when she's a child. When Buddha is 29 years old, she has that experience with, this is it, this is death. So then she, so she tries to become a, a holy person, but she's in this, this society where that's frowned upon. And she ends up, and there are lots of convolutions, plot things, but she ends up married to the Buddha. And she falls in love with him because he's so he's he's just a loving, worldly person. I make him someone who, you know, he's a he's a landlord. You know, he's a he's actually a clan leader, not a prince, as he was supposedly historical historically. And he's and and she's in love with him because he's so he loves his people. He's always trying to help people, and he has this sort of wonderful, innocent goodness about him but he does not ever talk about death or sickness. And rather than just being, you know, like in the myth, it's, a, it's that magical kind of thing. He has no contact with death or sickness until he's 29, which would be pretty impossible. Uh, in, this, in, this, in my novel, he just ignores it. You know, he just says, he says, live in the moment, live in the now, you know, which is somehow people, how some people misinterpret Buddhism. It's all about be here now, live the moment, and then everything is right. And it's not. You have to. You have to do other things besides just live in the moment, and uh, that's what the Buddha learns. And so he goes off, and as in the myth, he goes off and, and leaves his wife, and he comes back six years later, enlightened. And uh, at first, she thinks, "Oh, this is great. You know, I, he's enlightened. I'll join his sangha." And he says, "Oh, I'm so sorry. I can't have. I mean, our son can join, but you can't join. Women aren't allowed." And so, in her outrage. Uh, and he has his reasons, you know, he's, he's setting up this sangha. I mean, it just isn't done to have women in sanghas. It's just, you know, people wouldn't accept his sangha if they had women in it. He was doing something, he was doing something very radical. The Buddhism had no caste differences or no, you know, class differences in, the, in his community. And that was a very radical thing at the time. So, okay, he maybe had his reasons, but she was uh, outraged and, and, and just heartbroken because her son went off to become a monk. So she goes off to the hills and meets a shaman. And that's fiction. Although the, the, the shamanic woman, um, I was reading, there are a lot of women shamans that are sort of not, they don't get a whole lot of press, but they have existed through the eras. And the, the hill people that I write about are based on an actual tribe that the, uh, the Buddhist clan might very well have had relationships with because they did have a relationship with hill, hill people. 
And so she goes to the hills and she learns what she needs to learn from this shamanic woman. And I wanted to have, the reason why I put it there was, first of all, she needed to kind of get away from the Buddha so that we don't get into the story. Oh, she's still in love with the Buddha and she's following him. She needed to have her own life. So I have her do, learn this, what she needs to learn in the hills and then return. And uh, I, but I wanted that point of view because going back to the love of the earth, you know, there's the love of, humanity and the love of human individuals. I also wanted the idea of, you know, the, the points of view of animals and trees and the way the shamans look at the world. And sort of so add that to or sort of enhance her love of the world so that is included. Mm-hmm. And it makes it all the more difficult when the ascetics, which she meets in the in the Sangha say, hate the world, despise the world, forget it, you know. So she has more of a tension, more of a struggle when she gets to the when she gets to the, uh, to the shop, to the sangha. Fascinating. Would you like to see this as a film? I could have pictured it as a film one day. Yeah, sure. If they could do it, <laughs> why not? I mean, yeah. I mean, one of the things I like about novels and fiction and biography and poetry is that in a way it helps you get, it, it's a different way of passing over to the mind of another person, you know, and, and, and yet movies can tell a lot. They could, they could do a lot, but I love the idea of actually getting into someone's words and concepts and doubts and thoughts. You know, to me, I yep. mean, I learned so much of that as a child. I mean, that when I, I guess you guys grew up in the South. Uh-huh. Or, South Carolina. Yeah. So I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which was a really segregated city. And, uh, but I read, like, I remember reading this autobiography, not autobiography, but a little child's biography of the third grade of Washington Carver. And really, that got me into his head. And I was able to identify with someone very different from me. And it was just really, that could just, the right kinds of books, I think, are so good to, to get rid of big bigotry. Oh, right. Yeah. That's why they're so scary, because they work. It does yeah, get rid of right. bigotry. And, and then you have to change your mind. Yeah. Or your, you know, your life, uh, you know, you have to, you have to change the things that you've seen and heard and lived through. And that's right. what's so, that's what's so tough. You're right. The, the books can be very powerful. And then, and now I actually do think this could be something like a movie just because that is becoming a medium that is very powerful too. You're seeing more and more people take chances and, uh, you know, show, yeah. tell the stories visually and audibly and, you know, with all of that. So it's really great. Yeah. That's fascinating too. Sorry. No, go ahead. You can do a lot with conflict and dialogue, you know, and it's, I hope they bring back soliloquies, <laughs> like in, as in Shakespeare, you know, where the, the writers just sort of, the, the characters, and sometimes they do, they have a narrator just talking. I mean, that thing, I, I, I'm all for action and conflict, and we don't yeah. want a lot of heady stuff, but still, you know, I think there's room for both. I and think sometimes in movie, very often, oh, God. No, I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm on a delay from you. So I'm not catching well. I'm not trying to interrupt oh, you at all. Yeah. I apologize. Continue. The joys of technology. Yeah. Um, well, I was yeah. just saying that the, um, the, the thing that I've always had wrong, I was one, I'm one of those people that's addicted in that lifestyle way that you talk about this negative to nonfiction, uh, probably certainty and being able to understand things. You know, I've taken comparative religion, so I don't need to take no ride in nobody's head in fiction would be the way I've always looked at that. But I, I didn't understand what what you can actually 
get from that. You know, kind of thing. I've underappreciated that. I still don't really like to read fiction, but I'm kind of a bad reader. But sometimes with movies and stuff, when you really get that character thing, it is the feeling of being immersed, stopping being myself and taking a ride in somebody yeah. else's point of view. And yeah. I never think that's to study or learn. That's just to like chill out or do entertainment. I, so, you know, uh, there's a lot of us who have those two categories confused of how you can see things. But um, now I see that such brilliant thing for people to put creativity into stuff and weave fiction and nonfiction together to give you a point of view to then take a ride somewhere and get a different point of view. So yeah, I, I, I I'm that. way yeah. late to the ball game. People have been telling me that my whole life. It never made sense, but starting to now. <laughs> Well, I I love nonfiction. I I mean I I love reading about, uh, and I'm not a I'm not good at physics. I never took enough, but I love reading about it. I love reading. I mean, I'm, right now I'm doing a lot of reading just about the, uh, or actually I'm listening to it. I'm doing audio, listening to a lot of audio uh, lectures on the ancient world, ancient Greece, and and they, and that's it's just history and sociology. It's it's more ob- objective kinds of facts, but it still gives you another sense of the mentality of people, which in some ways is so like our own, in some ways is so different. And I, it just fascinates me. But, but it's facts in general. I, uh, I'm trying to remember his name now, Bill. He's written a book called The History of Everything, um, The History of Nearly Everything. And he starts with the Big Bang, and he talks about the discovery of uh, all the elements, and he talks about the scientists who discovered it. And it's just a, it's just such a wonderful book. And I, I, I'm reading it now for the second time because there's so much to it. And uh, some of these scientists are so weird. Like Isaac Newton used to stick things in his eyes just because they were curious. He looked at the sun for several days and he like, he didn't go blind, but he damaged his retina for a while. Yeah. <laughs> and then there was another scientist who was doing a lot of experiment with chemicals and he would taste things just because he was curious and he finally died. <laughs> Because yeah. he was tasting his experiments, you know, you're just like, wow, where are these people coming from? You know, and yep. it's just it's so. I mean, it, it, it's I don't think there needs to be a clash between fiction and nonfiction of all modes of knowing. You know, well, I, I, I know. Yeah, I, I was going to say I think the that the the fiction enhances the nonfiction, and because I, I think humans just naturally really do benefit from storytelling. I just think that's how uh, most of our history, honestly, uh, is that storytelling and word of mouth and shared shared experience uh, being passed down. And so I just think it's really valuable. I mean, that it's yeah. it is really b- valuable. Like the, I mean, and going even back to the myth, even though a lot of the stuff ends up not being true, there's still so much value and truth in it. Like uh, George Washington chopping down the cherry tree. That is not true, but you understand. <laughs> but the story, the idea there of what that was and who, what a man could be. And what it means to tell a lie or not tell a lie or what is, you know, be a kid or, you know, what are you facing your parent and, and doing the right thing or the wrong thing? All that's really valuable. So I think uh, that's why I appreciate this. Your book so much is just because that that's what I want to hear. I want to hear the story that enhances what we can know. You know what I mean? That's what I think think you were yeah. trying to do here is really valuable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's 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 emotional. It's not just if you know it's your gut emotion, it's your heart emotion. You know, and that's and movies certainly can convey emotion. You know, they're great. And the nice thing about having a book and a movie is very often I, I'll read the book and see the movie, and they complement each other, and they help me kind of keep the story in my head. Right. So I, I think that, you know, they want to make a movie out of my book. Hey, you know what, anybody? <laughs> Have them email me. <laughs> well, Bar- 
Well, Barbara, we really appreciate you being on here today. This was great. Uh, the book is awesome. I haven't. I just started it a couple of days ago, so it, it, it's already really good, very fun. Um, the Bride of Bu- the Bride of Buddha, uh, Barbara McHugh, and it's out now. Uh, you want to yeah. send any? Where Where can people go to get it? You can Amazon, get it. Wherever. Find it your local bookstore or any online vendor. You know, Amazon certainly has it. The other ones too. Uh, uh, so yeah, Bride of the Buddha. I have a website, barbaramchugh.com, if you want to find out anything else about me. And uh, I really enjoy talking to you guys. Yeah, this was great. Uh, Thank I, you. It's it a makes pleasure. me feel so positive about Christianity that it's you know it's really going through I think a renaissance you know or something. And it's yeah. I mean, my church I I really love, and uh, it's so great to see. I mean, because I think there is that evangelical fervor needs to go somewhere, you know. I mean, yeah. speaking in tongues, all that—that that doesn't have to be discarded. Right. And, we're we're all I believers. That's the way I look at it. We're just believer. We're we want to believe. We believe stuff. We're movable. We're susceptible to spiritual things. So we do have that energy yeah. and belief and motivation. So we have to do whatever we can to control it. Recognize it. Meditation. Not fall for the wrong traps and put that fervor somewhere positive i mean for sure yeah great awesome well barbara thank you so much this was great we really appreciate your time yeah, yeah thank, well, you. thank you so much and good luck i'll be tuning into your podcast sometime. <laughs> thanks a lot all right barbara man i really enjoyed that 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 uh i i guess i feel always like a fool talking about buddhism because i find it fascinating and i'm uh, i think it's just it's a lot of it's really great. And at the same time, I think there's still that deep-seated uh, South Carolina Christianity that I grew up with that goes, you better stay away from that. Better not. Even still now, you know what I mean? Like some of that deep, uh, uh, like I was taught Buddhism was sat- Satanism. Yeah. I mean, that really is what I was taught. I mean, anything besides Christianity is Satanism is what I was taught. So it's kind of neat. And then the whole aspect of his wife kind of being the hero of the story uh, when you're talking about the Buddha is, is really cool. Yeah, well, I'll put her in the, in the small category of people that are from an older generation than me that I like to talk to, such as Walt Shelton. So I'll put her on that oh, list. Yeah. Those are thoughtful people that have wisdom from time yeah. being passed that I don't have but yet recognize I wish I had or hope to have. So you know what I mean? Uh, right. I think that's very lacking in podcast conversations, period, or the media we consume. is all. If, if you notice, we very uh, segregate by age. Yeah. I don't think that's good. No, I agree 100%. I mean, just uh, look at the, the two people you just said. That, that Those names aren't even going to exist in the future of people. Walt and Barbara. People, <laughs> It'll be people a while they come back. They'll come back, not, though. They might come back, I hope. But, I mean, there ain't going to be a lot of Walt and Barbara's probably in 2060. But but then maybe maybe one day, maybe maybe when There'll we get be the 3,000s, three, three yeah. it'll come back. There'll be but. a bunch of babies named that in yeah. another 30 years or something. Yeah, you're probably right. But not, not, not for no. a little while. So. Right. Anyway, if you're not a member of the BC Club, why not join now? Great episodes like this. And... You, you're listening to this, you want to support us, but we, we do two episodes a week, and we're starting to do some extra stuff, too. And, man, we might get that BC Con back once this COVID is gone. Who knows what's going to happen? So if you love the BC Pod, support us. Join the BC Club. Where do they go to join? Uh, the BCclub.com will do it. All right. See y'all.